tonight we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Isaiah, one of the big prophets. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, then Isaiah is right before Jeremiah, which is where we were at last week, and right after Song of Solomon. Um, Tonight, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 16 is our passage. It's going to be projected on the wall, and it's also printed on page 7 of your bulletin. But I'll read it for us. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 16. Then we'll pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll jump in. So this is God's Word, written thousands of years ago, but still relevant, meaningful, and true for you tonight. So give it your attention, please. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the, mother, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask him to bless it and give us understanding. Father, we come now before you again and ask that you would give us the humility that is required to not just hear these words with our ears, but to hear them with our hearts. Tonight we pray, Father, in heaven, that you would send to us the Holy Spirit and that he would pierce our stony hearts and give to us again new life through the word of God. We pray tonight that we who are lonely or sad 
that we who are discouraged or despondent, that we who are struggling in sin and unrepentant, that we who are broken off from relationships and in need of renewal would all come again to see and believe and experience the grace that you freely offer to us in abundance through Jesus. May Jesus, you be clear tonight through these words, for they indeed are about you. We pray for your help in understanding them well. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. When my children, I have three children, and when our older two children were a little bit younger, uh, in the days when they were not yet sleeping fully through the nights, many of you who might be young parents know how that now know how that's like. Uh, there were many long nights, and it, it got to the point where going to bed at night was almost a dreaded experience because you were just waiting for one of the kids to start screaming or crying and wake things up, wake you up, wake your spouse up, and then hopefully you'd get to go back to sleep at some point. Uh, it's one of my very clear memories of being a, a parent when my children were very, very young. And I, I also remember vividly, Marianne and I would be sleeping at night and one of us would hear the children first on the monitor. I would hear a, a scream. It probably wasn't a piercing scream, but at two in the morning, any scream is piercing. It pierced deeply into the core of who I am, right? And uh, I woke up and, you know, I'd kind of just check to make sure, see if Marianne was awake yet to sort of assess the situation, right? Right away. Okay, the laughter tells me that I'm not alone in this selfishness, so that's good to know. And uh, I'd kind of look over as gently as I could, and I'd see that Marianne was still asleep, and I'd think, okay, I'm going to wait this one out. Let's wait until she wakes up, so maybe she'll go get Nate or Ainsley. Sometimes she would wake up, and she would go do it. Sometimes she would just start nudging me, or I would nudge her back. Sometimes I would eventually get up and do it, but the bottom line was, eventually, it would always get to the point where the kids screaming, you know, I would just sort of expect it to magically go away, and I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think they've ever just stopped. They want us to come in there. And it gets to a point where either I or Marianne can no longer ignore it. Marianne usually gets right up when she hears it. I tend to ignore it for a while and then get up. But they eventually overwhelmed us. And one of us would get up and go check and see what the deal was. Um, perhaps that's an experience you've had this week. If you're kind of saggy-eyed right now, I can tell. Um, this series that we've been studying really throughout the fall, in many ways, is, has been intended to be like a baby screaming in your ear at night so that you can't ignore it. Um, part of the purpose of this series, the story of God, has been to show you that Jesus is everywhere in the Bible, that really the whole story of the Christian scriptures at the end of the day is about him. And in our natural selves, we want to ignore that, we want to pretend that it's not happening, just like I liked pretending that my children weren't screaming over the monitor in my ears. But as the story has progressed forward, and as we've seen more and more of God's revelation of himself to us in the Bible, hopefully you can't ignore Jesus screaming at you literally on every single page of the Bible. Hopefully, he's vividly and apparently present in each of the stories that we've covered. We started all the way back in Genesis 1. And we've gone through some of the major, um, the major ideas and the major stories of the biblical narrative. And tonight, we come to the prophet Isaiah. 
Last week we looked at another prophet, Jeremiah, and tonight we're in Isaiah. And the reason I wanted to spend one week on Isaiah is because Isaiah is Isaiah represents the, the most fully formed pictures and images of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is presented in Isaiah as, as a king and also as a servant, as the servant king who would one day come to rescue and ransom Israel, his people. You know, if you think about, again, to use an illustration of young children, when you find out that you're pregnant with a child and you go to that first doctor's appointment and you might subscribe to an email list or, a, or you read a book and the book will say something like, you know, at, at eight weeks your baby is the size of a, a peanut, right? And at 14 weeks your baby is the size of a, these are random, right? I'm not sure if this is scientifically accurate. Your baby's the size of an apple and then a watermelon and then, you know, eventually you can tell that there's something going on in there. Right. And uh, as, as things progress in the ultrasounds, dads can kind of see you, you see the, the doctor point and say, that's your baby. And the dad's like, what, what that? But eventually, as the baby develops, you can see, OK, there is certainly a person in there. I can see it clearly now. Isaiah is sort of like uh, the ninth month of pregnancy in an ultrasound. It's very evident that someone is there. Jesus is there. He's more. He's more fully formed, so to speak, in Isaiah than anywhere else in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, I should say. And so what I want to do tonight is just take one example from Isaiah 49 of many examples we could have used from this story, from this prophecy, and show you how Isaiah points us forward to Jesus and how Isaiah tells us and teaches us about the God who is real, the God who is up there now, the God who makes promises to you and to me. Promises that are true. Before we jump in, let me tell you one more thing about how to read prophecy, just for your own Bible reading pleasure. Um, And I'll try to illustrate this. When we lived in Tucson, Tucson is surrounded by mountain ranges. And when I would drive from our house to work, I would drive due north facing the Catalina Mountain Range, a beautiful uh, crested mountain range that even in the desert oftentimes would have snow-capped peaks. Just a beautiful drive every morning. And as the sun is coming up in the mornings in Tucson and you're driving north on the road looking at the Catalina Mountains, it seems like there's just one range of mountains at first glance. But as you approach the mountains and get closer to them, you can actually see that there are two ranges. There's a, a smaller little range of hills in front of the larger Catalina Mountain Range. When you read biblical prophecy, especially the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you should think of it in a similar way. You're reading about what seems at first glance to be just a prophecy about something that's going to happen sometime in the future to Israel, to the ancient people of God. But as you examine the story, and as you study the story, and as you let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the story, you actually begin to see that like those two mountain ranges, biblical prophecy has, it has two levels of fulfillment. When Isaiah writes here, he's writing first about his people 2,700 years ago, the people of Israel, and about what was going to happen to them as they were about to go into exile. That's the smaller mountain range. But really, and ultimately, Isaiah is also prophesying about the greater king, about the greater exile, about the greater redemption that was to come in 
Jesus. So all of the prophecies that we read in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, have their immediate initial fulfillment somewhere around the day in which that prophet was writing, and they have an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we see that very clearly tonight here in Isaiah 49. So with all that out of the way, let's jump in and look at three things as we think about how Isaiah shows us teaches us about the God who promises, particularly the God who promises a servant king. Three things I want to show you. First, the nature of the servant. Second, the task of the servant. And then third, the blessings of the servant. Nature, task, blessings. Okay? All right, let's go. Verse 1, chapter 49, we see first here in these first few verses the nature of the servant. And Isaiah really tells us two things. He's prophesying here, and and initially it's the servant, the the pre-incarnate Jesus, really, speaking in the first person. Listen to me. That's a command. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples. In other words, everyone, listen up. The first thing we see about the nature of this servant that Isaiah is portraying for us is that he has authority. He calls on the world to listen to him and to pay attention. And then he says, the Lord has called me from the womb. His hand has been set on me from the very beginning. And then in verse 2, he uses this, this imagery of a sharp sword. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me. That image is intended to speak to us about the authority of the words of this servant. He's in the shadow of his hand, the hand of the Lord. He comes from God and he has the authority of God. The nature of the servant is one that we should heed, that we should pay attention to. He is a king. And yet, paradoxically, we see that the servant in his nature doesn't just have authority, but beginning in verse 3, we see there that he also has humility. Look at that, verse 3. And he said, That's the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my what? My servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then in verse 4, he speaks about pain that he's going to experience. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength. In other words, he is a king, a servant who has authority, who calls the nations to listen to him. But he is also one who comes in in weakness. He's one who comes in humility. He's one that verse 3 says, intends not to glorify himself, but to glorify his father. In the mid-90s, the Dallas Cowboys were an NFL dynasty. Those days are long past, sadly, although they're having a decent season this year. And I remember growing up when I was in high school and they were winning their Super Bowls, watching uh, the Cowboys with my dad, and they would just be dominant, especially their running game with Emmitt Smith, the greatest NFL rusher of all time. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I will hear no arguments. Emmitt is the best. And... um, Emmett, every year, it became famous. Every year at the end of the season, he would buy like a Rolex for every one of his offensive linemen. Some ridiculously expensive gift. And the reason he said he would do this every year is because his offensive lineman's entire job was to make him look good. The offensive lineman would open just these cavernous holes that you could have driven a truck through. They did all of the grunt work, all of the dirty work, so that Emmett could eventually become the leading rusher in the history of the league. You know, Emmett knew that other people's service is what let him get all the glory. That's my football illustration for the week, by the way. I can't get it off my mind, sorry. But that's exactly really what the servant is saying here about himself. He is, he is like an offensive lineman. 
He is doing the dirty work. He is doing the grunt work. His job, he says here, is to put all the attention upon the Lord, upon Yahweh. So we see that the nature of the servant is both one who has authority and yet also one who is humble enough to come in weakness, who is humble enough to serve. Think about that with me for just one minute more. I think that there's something unique there to Christianity. I think that there's something that hopefully will captivate you as you think about who Jesus really is. You see, Jesus tells you here that he is the kind of king who is both powerful enough to help you and also humble enough to care for you. Jesus is Jesus is a strong enough king. He has enough authority to be able to help you. And he is a humble enough servant. He has enough love and compassion to want to help you. I wonder if you have ever thought about God in those terms. Many of us tend to think of God as either one or the other. Maybe you think about God as really, really powerful. Really, really strong, able to throw this universe into existence and even maybe able to sustain it right now. But he doesn't really care about little old us. Or maybe you've thought about God in the opposite way. You think that God is just your personal best buddy. And you like to high five him in your quiet times every day and have a sweet little time with God, and, and you know, it's almost like a Jesus is my boyfriend sort of thing. And you forget that he's also the all-powerful reigning king of the universe who will return one day with a sword coming from his mouth and execute justice on the nations. You know, Jesus is actually both at the same time in a completely non-contradictory way. And because he is that kind of king, because he is that kind of God, you can be completely confident, no matter what's going on in your life right now, that he is both powerful enough to help you and caring enough to want to help you. That's what the nature of the servant shows you. It's what Isaiah initially calls us to believe here. But we see much more. He tells us about the nature of the servant. He both has authority, right? Jesus is going to have authority and he's going to have humility. But then he tells us, beginning there in verse 5, about the task of the servant. And I love these verses. We read there that the Lord says... He who formed me, again, this is the servant speaking in the first person. He who formed me from the womb, from the very beginning to be his servant. And then read this next verse carefully. To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Remember, that's the first level of fulfillment. The servant's task is to bring back God's people. To bring Israel and Judah out of exile, which they are going to go into because of their rebellion against God. But then in the next verse, verse 6, he says, It's too light a thing that you should only be that kind of servant with that kind of task. That task, just to bring back Israel, does not bring me nearly enough glory. And so what I'm going to do is have you be a light for the nations, for the entire world, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Listen, the task of the servant can be summarized with one word. The task of the servant is to restore. Jesus comes to bring you back to God. You know, that might be a way to summarize the entire message of the Bible. That can summarize everything that we've been been studying over the last few months in this series, the story of God. You need to be brought back to God. God made you. 
He created you perfect in his image in your first parents, Adam and Eve. And he put you in a wonderful place where you could worship and work and serve him and flourish. And yet our first parents threw that all away when they fell through their rebellion, through casting God off of his throne or attempting to do so and trying to put themselves there instead. And ever since that day, all of our hearts by nature want the same thing. God to be out of the picture and ourselves to run the roost. We've stumbled, we've strayed, we've run away from God. And the message of the Bible is that God pursues us and wants to bring us back, back into his family, back into a renewed relationship with him, back into a life where we'll experience his love, back into a world where we can live in a flourishing place. He wants to restore us. That's the whole point. That is his task. The Spirit's telling us that very clearly here through Isaiah. You know, as I read these words, I can't can't help but think to myself. And I hope that you also might be thinking now. It's so clear that something is wrong with this world. You know, you might not buy Christianity at all at this point. You might be completely skeptical. No, you might just outright reject the claims of Jesus. But most people that I've talked to will freely admit that there is something that is broken. There is something that is broken both in our own lives and there's something that's broken in this world. We are desperately in need of restoration. And the Bible calls that sort of inherent longing that we all have for restoration, to be brought back to a place of fullness. The Bible calls that out of us, in a sense, when we read texts like this. We, we rem, we're reminded as we read these prophecies and as we hear about why Jesus came that, that indeed we do need to be restored. You know, it reminds me of um, one of C.S. Lewis's famous Chronicles of Narnia, in the voyage of the Dawn Shredder. Um, I don't remember the exact page or the exact quote, but I do know that the children, after they've returned from Narnia at the beginning of the voyage of the Dawn Shredder, you know, the normal world, London, England at that point, just, it just doesn't satisfy them anymore. They feel a soreness and a, a lack of something. They feel like they've experienced life to the fullest in Narnia, and now their sort of regular old life just isn't going to do it for them anymore. They want to go back, you see. That is, that is something that is inherent deep inside every single one of us. We know that deep down we want to go back to what we once were before the fall before the brokenness of this world crashed down upon us, before things in our lives began falling apart. And what this scripture text is telling us is that Jesus came exactly to do that, to restore you, not just to your former condition of innocence, but to a fully restored place of redemption. He wants to bring you back to the family of God through his servant work. What do you need to be restored from? What is going on in your life right now that needs a new start? Is it a fading and broken relationship? Is it a dead-end job that you're sick and tired of? Is it the toil and the futility of just your daily routine? Is it 
a past failure that you can't seem to overcome? Is it the shame that you continually carry deep inside your spirit because of the way that your dad spoke to you when you were growing up? What is it in your life where you most sense a need? A need to have the crookedness of your life made straight again. Where is it that you most feel the fallenness and messiness and brokenness of this existence? Those are exactly the places that Jesus is going to come to bring healing and renewal and peace. That is his task. He does not just restore the people of Israel, but no, he comes as a light for the nations that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, to the end of your story, to the end of your life, to the end of your struggles. That is his task. The nature of the servant is that he both has authority and humility. The task of the servant, in a word, is to restore us to what we have lost through sin. And then lastly, beginning in verse 8, we see the blessings of the servant. That is, the blessings that the servant brings. Another way to put it is we see the benefits that are ours because of his restoring work in our lives. And I think these are just beautiful verses that we can only touch on a few of the themes that Isaiah brings out here. But really quickly, let me show you three blessings that the servant brings us. The first, I think you can say, is redemption. Look there in verse 8. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. The, the servant here, I think we can say, is coming to bring, bring the blessing of, of redemption to his people. When, when Isaiah tells us there that God is going to make him a covenant for the people, what we can understand from that is simply this, that Jesus is going to come and succeed in every place where we have failed. Where we have failed to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus will do it. Where we have broken our promises to obey him and to follow him, Jesus will keep them. Where we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus comes and does that perfectly. And in doing what we fail to do, Jesus buys us back out of the bondage that our sin brings us in. Jesus rescues us. He redeems us. He says to those who are imprisoned, come out. He says to those who are in darkness, appear. Think about the imagery there. How beautiful it must be to know that whatever it is is, that is binding you right now, whatever it is that right now is causing confusion in your life, Jesus comes to rescue you out of. That is one of the blessings that the servant brings. The second one is satisfaction. We see that there in verse 10. The people of God, when Jesus comes, will not hunger. They will not thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. Because he who has pity on them will lead them. By springs of water he will guide them. He will make all his mountains a road. Access to him will be easy. And when we gain access to him, we will be finally satisfied. We will no longer thirst. We will no longer be hungry. The things that you look for in your life to bring you fulfillment, but that never quite live up to their billing, will fade when Jesus and his kingdom arrive in fullness in your life. You will be fully and infinitely 
forever satisfied. You think about, think about the best day that you can remember having in your life. I mean, I can think of three or four days that I look back on those days. And I'm like, man, that was just a great day. Everything was just awesome about it. it just went really well. I, I just, I love life on that day. But, but then that day ends. And you wake up the next day and it's probably going to be worse <laughs> than the prior day. And then you might wake up a week later and things are really, really getting bad. Even the best moments of our life only satisfy us just for a glimpse, just for a a fleeting moment. And what the servant brings us is the blessing of permanent and ultimate satisfaction when we see the face of God. He brings us redemption. He brings us satisfaction. And then lastly, and maybe the theme of the whole text is summarized here, he brings compassion. That's the final blessing that we see Look in verse 13. Sing for joy, break forth into singing. Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion. He will have compassion on his afflicted. In some, of the, in some ways, this is, this is the most profound and reassuring promise that we find here. God will have compassion on us. Think about that for a moment. Think about all of these blessings for a moment. Let Let these promises of God sink deeply into your hearts. Listen, because of the coming of Jesus, the servant, God has redeemed you. There's nothing that you can ever do if you are in Christ by faith that will make God angry with you or that will make God turn his back on you. Your shortcomings and your shame and your guilt do not in the slightest degree affect your relationship with God because Jesus Christ has redeemed you and has been given to you. Because of the coming of Jesus the servant, God satisfies and nourishes you in your unemployment, in your crumbling relationships, in your sickness, in your wanting, in your weakness, in your brokenness. God has pity on you and leads you by springs of water. He will not let the scorching wind or the heat overwhelm and destroy you. He will take care of you. He will give you himself so that you will never thirst again. Because of the coming of Jesus the servant, God has compassion on you. In Jesus Christ, you are more loved and accepted by God than you ever dared hope. God loves you. God cares for you. God's compassion for you is as certain as the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. God's love for you is rich and unfailing. God's love for you is greater than your love for your own sin. God's love for you knows no bounds. It's limitless. It's unending. It will go on forever. It will carry you along with it. That is what this text is promising. And without question, many of you doubt that that is true. Without question, I oftentimes doubt that that's really true. Israel, almost 3,000 years ago when Isaiah wrote this, doubted that it was true. That's why we read there in verse 14, Zion or Israel said, The Lord's forsaken me. My God's forgotten me. Forget it, Isaiah. I'm not buying this. Quit giving me the good news because my life's terrible right now. We're about to go into exile. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Come on, Pastor Luke, quit giving me the good news. Give me something practical to help me now. My life stinks. I'm depressed. I'm sick. I feel terrible. My marriage is terrible. 
I can't stand my kids. I can't stand my parents. Nothing is going well for me. God has forsaken me. That's the normal impulse of all of our hearts. Listen, the only answer I can give you is I get it. And the only answer God gives you is believe. Believe what he says here. Even a nursing mom can sometimes forget the child at her breast. But I will never forget you. And I will prove it by engraving your name on the palm of my hand. In your worst moment, in your darkest hour, in your bleakest day, you can look to Jesus and see his nail-pierced palms and know that when he was pierced on the cross in death, you were pierced in God's hand in love. Because for a moment, God did turn his back on Jesus, his son, the suffering servant. You can be completely assured in your darkest moment that God will never turn his back on you. Because for a time, God put his own son to death under the powers of hell and Satan and evil. You can be completely assured that you will never have to undergo such sufferings. Because God, after three days, raised Jesus up from the dead, never to die or suffer again, and seated him at the right hand where he now lives and reigns and will one day come again, you can be certain that when things in your life are beyond terrible and you don't know where to turn, God is sovereign and your name is written on the palm of his hand and that every time he looks at his hand, he thinks of you. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. If God is not ever going to forsake you and you're connected, if God is not ever going to forsake Jesus and you're connected to Jesus by faith, then God is never going to forsake you, even when it feels like you're being forsaken. Believe the promises of God. See their fulfillment in the servant who suffered so that you don't have to, who died the death that you should have died so that you can live the life that he lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the work that you have done for us in the gospel. Father, we thank you that it is predicted and portrayed and seen for us in Isaiah in these beautiful, compelling, descriptive, poetic words. You promised your people of old that you would one day send the servant to come and bear their shame and their guilt, pay for their sin, die in their place. And Father, we are able by your grace to look back and know that that has all happened for us in Jesus. When his hands were pierced with your wrath and with your judgment, Father, in that moment, your hands were pierced with our names. We are beloved of you. You care deeply for us and delight in us despite our sin, despite our failures, despite our guilt. Father, these things have been wiped away through the restoration that you bring us in Jesus. Oh, Father, may we believe that. May that gospel change everything. May it affect our emotional life. May it affect our physical life. May it affect the way we think about ourselves and about our families and about our neighbors, about our past and our present and our future. Oh, God, help us. 
Help us to believe that this message is true, that you have sent the servant Jesus, one who has authority and one who had humility to restore us, and that because he has restored us in his death and resurrection, we have redemption. We have satisfaction. We have your eternal compassion ever over us. Father, thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.